Well, as we welcome our friends in the Community Life Center today, we are prepared to come to a conclusion in our journey through the series we've been studying on the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to look at a couple together today as a way of concluding. Uh, And to set that up, I want to read first a passage from the book of Colossians in the third chapter. And it's, uh, it's amazing, as you've hopefully seen, how many places the fruit of the Spirit and uh, these various themes that are related to them appear in other places in Scripture, and Colossians is a great example. So uh, join with me as I read together, as we read together Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, since it's still hot outside, and because I am not one to quickly surrender the summer, I want to invite you to join me this morning on an imaginary trip. We're going to float together today down a river. You can decide what river it is. Maybe it's something small like the Roanoke River, maybe something a little bigger like the James, or if you're feeling really adventurous, we can take a trip down the mighty Mississippi. It's up to you. But whatever the case, imagine for a moment that we've all assembled together on the banks of that river. Some of us have old inner tubes. Some of us have uh, dollar store rafts. Some of us have fancy kayaks. Grant Frederick, because he's the music guy, and music guys always do their own thing, shows up with a jet ski, but we make him leave it at home. 
At the appointed time, we're all going to shove off the riverbank together and float down to our destination. You got that picture in your mind? Now, I want you to let that picture frame our view of the last two fruit of the Spirit that we will consider. It is appropriate that we consider them together because gentleness and self-control have a lot to do with each other. Now, truth be told, all the fruit of the Spirit have a lot to do with each other. They're all related. They overlap so that in some cases it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins. As soon as you begin talking about one, you immediately bring the others into view. And that's why, if you will remember, when we started this series, we pointed to the fact that the Apostle Paul doesn't refer to these as the fruits, plural, of the Spirit, but singularly as the fruit of the Spirit, that all together, as a whole, these virtues make up the life of the believer. But this morning, we want to look particularly at, at gentleness and self-control because they go together uniquely. They balance one another out in a very helpful way. So we're going to look at each one in turn. First, let's, let's look at gentleness first. Like all the fruit, gentleness is something that we can intuitively understand. You don't need a lot of technical definitions. You kind of know gentleness when you see it. And yet, having said that, I do think it's helpful to understand how the word appears in the New Testament and what it means specifically there. In the Greek of the New Testament, the word for gentleness only appears a handful of times. But every time it does, it has the sense of humbleness or humility. In fact, in at least two instances, one of which we just read, the word for gentleness is paired directly with the word for humility. So the two obviously go together. And then there's another instance, if you will recall, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Gentleness is often paired with that word as well. So being gentle has something to do with being humble and, and being meek. Unfortunately, those terms have sort of a negative uh, image in today's world. To be humble, to be meek is oftentimes viewed as a sign of weakness or passivity. We're given the impression that to be meek or to be humble is just to lie down and let others walk on you. But in the biblical worldview, nothing could be further from the truth. Meekness, humility, gentleness, these things are not an, a, a portrayal of weakness or passivity. Rather, they are a sign of incredible strength and inner character. And to illustrate that, I want you to go back with me to the river that we're floating down together today. Now, nobody would ever doubt that a river is a powerful thing. Rivers are used to generate electricity. Rivers are used to carry large vessels and the cargo that they carry. Rivers are used to channel millions of gallons of drinking water they serve as home to untold varieties of fish and plant life that makes human life possible. It's almost hard to imagine the amount of power and energy that's contained even within a small river. A river is a strong thing. 
And yet the reason you're so eager to take that float trip with me this morning is because when you're floating down a river, you can literally just go with the flow. That river will just naturally take you to your destination. You don't have to exert yourself. You don't have to expend a lot of useless energy forcing yourself to go this way or that way. In fact, you don't have to force anything. You can just relax and let the river do the work for you. Let the current sweep you along because so long as the river stays within its banks, that current will take you where you are going. It might not be the speediest or most direct route, but sooner or later, it will get you there. I think that's a beautiful image for gentleness. To be gentle is to not be unnecessarily forceful. It doesn't mean you don't have the ability to be forceful, but it means you are able to exercise restraint and not be forceful in a way that isn't helpful. To be gentle means not insisting that you have to go this way or that way when you could just as easily go wherever it is the current is taking you. Gentleness means not demanding to have your way in your time on your terms when another way could be just as good. Gentleness means knowing when to back off, when to let go, when to relinquish control, and to quit pushing things beyond the limits of what is useful or helpful. To stick with the river analogy, to be gentle is simply to be willing to go with the flow as long as it is appropriate to do so. A gentle answer turns away wrath, says Proverbs 15, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Let's consider what gentleness might look like in some of the various arenas of our lives. Take parenting, for example. What does it mean to be a gentle parent? A gentle parent is one who knows how to let a child's unique personality flourish instead of forcing that child to fit into some mold that we have already predetermined for them. You know that famous proverb that says, train up a child in the way that he should go and he will not depart from it? Well, the Hebrew there is actually very nuanced and complicated. And one potential paraphrase of that is, let a child become the person God created them to be and they will be healthy. Don't force them to be something God did not design them to be. Similarly, a gentle parent is one who knows how to allow children to make appropriate mistakes so that they can learn from them rather than always running ahead and clearing the tracks ahead of them so that they never trip. A gentle parent is one who does not exert parental authority merely for the sake of exerting parental authority, but one who knows how to exert authority only when it's necessary for the good of the child or the good of the family. Gentle parenting is not weak parenting. It is not hands-off parenting. To the contrary, it is wise parenting that doesn't 
unnecessarily force things beyond the point of usefulness. Consider gentleness in the arena of marriage. Is there anyone who couldn't benefit from having a spouse who was a little bit gentler with them? Gentleness in marriage means not running roughshod over your spouse's feelings merely for the sake of proving a point or, or winning an argument. A gentle spouse is one who does not insist that his or her personal agenda is more important or more urgent, unless, of course, in that moment it is. A gentle spouse is one who is willing to go wherever it is that the other's legitimate needs take them instead of demanding that things have to go a certain way at a certain time in a certain direction. A gentle spouse is not a distant spouse, a disinterested spouse, an unengaged spouse, but rather one who does not force things beyond their usefulness. What about gentleness in our friendships? A gentle friend is one who is willing to listen before insisting on speaking. And when it does come time to speak, a gentle friend is one who knows how to speak the truth, to say what needs to be said, but to do it in a way that isn't unfairly harsh or unnecessarily critical. A gentle friend is one who does not grow bitter or frustrated the moment things don't go our way. Being a gentle friend does not mean allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. It does mean allowing the relationship to unfold at its own pace and in its own natural way. We even need gentleness in our relationship with God. In other words, we need to allow God to take us wherever He will, when He will, rather than demanding that things have to go our way on our time. Rather than insisting that we have to find the next director of children's ministries within six weeks, it sometimes means we wait two and a half years. But God will get us there. The ultimate example of going with the flow is allowing God to direct us where He will in His time. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in the book of Acts. The 26th chapter, Paul recounts for us his conversion experience, which we first read about in Acts chapter 9. And so many years later, he's reflecting on that experience, and, and he says in that reflection in Acts 26 that he remembers hearing God in that moment ask him, quote, why are you kicking against the goads? Now, that's an odd saying, not part of our everyday vocabulary anymore. It was an agricultural expression. In those days, an oxen or some other beast of burden would have certain restraining instruments placed upon them that were in they were intended to goad the animal forward, to keep the animal on track and on course. But sometimes, out of frustration and irritation, the animal would start kicking against those instruments, but it didn't accomplish anything. The animal would still be forced to do what it was being forced to do. The only thing is now it was very irritated and angry about it. 
Paul says that's what God was asking him. Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you forcing your way against what I have already laid out? Why are you insisting on doing things your way in your time when there's a better way that I have laid out for you? That describes us when we don't practice gentleness. We can force, we can demand, we can insist on things, but it usually isn't going to produce anything good. Like the old expression I once heard, never try to teach a pig to sing because it wastes your time and it annoys the pig. Why do we spend our energies on things that aren't productive, that don't take us anywhere closer to where it is God has called us to be? Instead, we have to learn a posture of gentleness, of learning to go with the flow. Now that said, we must acknowledge that there are occasions when, quote, the flow is taking us in a bad direction. You will notice several times now I've used the phrase appropriate and necessary. That gentleness means going with the flow when it is appropriate to do so. But sometimes it won't be. Because sometimes the flow is taking us to a place that isn't good. And it's in those moments... And we kind of have to be willing to go against the flow. When matters of principle are involved, when truth is at stake, when the well-being of others is in question, when important goals are being jeopardized, well, in those moments, we can't afford to just go with the flow. It's then that we have to step up and assert ourselves and move in a new direction. Now, we should always do so gently. We can never become rigid about it. We can be firm without being forceful. We can be honest without being abrasive. We can be truthful without being demeaning. Sometimes we just can't afford to go with the flow. And that's where the final fruit of the Spirit comes into play, the fruit of self-control. Now we often think of self-control as the ability to not do certain things. The discipline, for example, to hold your tongue when your first instinct is to lash out. Or we might think of self-control as the discipline to not eat that third piece of pie or to spend the entire day binge watching the latest Netflix show and certainly that's a part of self-control the spiritual life is about recognizing there are limits and boundaries in life and that when we cross those boundaries we can do great damage to ourselves and others in much the same way that a river becomes destructive once it gets outside of its banks. All of that power and energy that it's contained now becomes a force for death and destruction and chaos. Whether it's food or sex 
or money or emotions or any of a hundred other areas of life, failure to exercise restraint and discipline and control can be devastating. But I would argue to you this morning that that's only a part of self-control. Because if the only discipline we ever learn in life is how to say no to things, then I would venture to say we're going to wind up with a faith that is short-sighted and not vibrant. I've heard more than one person say over the years that they grew up in the church and that their abiding view of Christianity was that it was primarily a list of all the things you can't do. But that isn't the case at all. The Christian faith is first and foremost about saying yes to something. It is about saying yes to the God who has already said yes to us in Jesus Christ. Faith begins not by saying no to something, but by saying yes to something, by responding affirmatively to God's grace and mercy given to us in Jesus Christ. And that is why self-control is about far more than just learning to say no to the right things. It is also about learning to say yes to the right things. Self-control is about recognizing that God has placed within each of us the, the energies and the passions and the abilities and the gifts necessary to do what God's called us to do. It's about recognizing that resource that God has placed within me and then harnessing that and applying it to move myself in the direction that I believe God is calling me to go. Self-control is about having a vision, a dream, a desire, a picture of the life that God has created me to live and then moving myself in that direction so that I can become a co-laborer with God in Jesus Christ as He calls the world back to Himself. Self-control is about learning to say no to some things so that we can learn to say yes to other things. Come back with me to the river this morning. I think we can all agree that floating down a river is a very relaxing way to spend a lazy summer afternoon. And so long as we are floating down that river, we don't have to make any decisions. We don't have to exert ourselves. We can just go where it takes us. But while we might enjoy that moment together, I think we can also agree that we cannot afford to spend our entire life that way. Because life is about more than just floating aimlessly and effortlessly wherever the currents take us. Sooner or later, we have to pick a direction for our lives. Sooner or later, we have to decide where it is we believe God is leading us, and then we have to be intentional about setting our course and moving in that direction. Now we remain gentle as we do it. We don't become rigid and inflexible. We must remain appropriately gentle. But along the way, we've got to learn to channel our abilities and our energies towards some larger goal while turning away from those things that would distract us from it. And that is the heart of self. 
control. Exercising spirit-led control over the direction of my life rather than simply becoming a hapless victim of circumstance. Nobody reflected this more perfectly than Jesus did. On the one hand, Jesus was always endlessly patient and gentle. He was always ready to allow himself to be interrupted or redirected when he encountered genuine human need. He was never in such a hurry that he couldn't see the pain right in front of him. And he would show the compassion and the kindness is necessary to respond to it. Jesus was gentle. But we would be wrong if we assumed, therefore, that Jesus just sort of driftlessly wandered around the world, just kind of waiting for the next need to drop in his lap. Far from it. Jesus had a very specific goal, a very specific destination in mind, and everything he did was pointing in that direction. His entire ministry was directed towards the purpose of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that he would initiate through his own selfless sacrifice on the cross. And everything about his ministry was for the purpose of fulfilling that larger calling. I love the way Luke puts it in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Or as some of the older translations in English say, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. That's a statement of intentionality, of purpose, of goal-directed living Not just aimless, wandering wherever the circumstances took him, but pointing everything that he had and everything he was towards fulfilling the thing he knew God had sent him here to do. And in the way Luke tells the story, for the next 14 chapters, everything that happens, happens as Jesus is on his way there. And it reaches a culmination when he gets to Jerusalem. And in those last hours of his life, where on the one hand it looks like Jesus is just a victim being handed off from one person to the next, at the same time, when you read the way the gospel writers tell the story, it is clear that Jesus is still in firm control. Why? Because he knew everything about his life was directed towards what God had called him to do, and he would let nothing distract him from that. That is what self-control is all about. It is about having the Spirit-led discipline to stay focused on what God is calling us to be and do. It is about not allowing ourselves to get dragged off and distracted by everything that comes along. Self-control means that with God's Spirit living in us, we can be intentional, we can be purposeful about moving our lives in the direction He wants to take us. It means that we can bring our lives into alignment with Him. I imagine all of us this morning could acknowledge there's some area of our lives, some aspect of our experience that isn't quite what it should be. Perhaps our marriages are faltering. 
because we've allowed the circumstances of our lives to drag us away from the commitments that we made rather than maintaining control over our responses to one another. Perhaps our emotional lives have become disordered because we've given too much control to the forces of chaos that are spinning all around us. Perhaps our financial houses are not in order because we've been too lazy or apathetic in managing our money. Perhaps our devotional lives are unhealthy and our experience of God's presence is shallow because we've, we've allowed the urgent matters of the day to crowd out the most important matters of eternity. We've lost self-control. Whatever the case, we can know this much, it doesn't have to stay that way. Now, to be clear, we cannot control everything that happens to us. That's a part of what it means to be a creature. We are subject to forces larger than us, but we can control how we respond to the things that happen to us. We don't have to live out our days as hapless victims of circumstance that just get drugged wherever the currents of life take us. With God's help, we can assert the kind of self-control the Holy Spirit longs to give us. All of which brings us back to where this whole conversation began. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that if the Holy Spirit is living in us, then the Spirit will make a real, measurable discernible difference in how we live. It's not just about having ideas in our head. It's about having a different pattern of life. Our lives will come to bear the characteristics of God's nature. With God's help, we can begin to nurture joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, self-control. In other words, with God's help, we can begin to look more like Jesus. And that's where we bring this series to a close. You may recall a few weeks ago when we began this journey, we skipped over the very first fruit named on the list, which is love. We skipped over it not because it isn't important, but rather because it's the most important one of all. And because I believe it's far easier to understand what the Bible means by love once we have first come to understand what all the other fruit look like. So let me invite you as we close out to reconsider the words we read from a moment ago in Colossians chapter 3 in which the Apostle Paul says, Over all these put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love, in the way the Bible talks about it, is not a sentiment. It is not an emotion. Love is a power. It is the power that holds all the fruit of the Spirit together so that they function as a unified whole. That is exactly what Jesus did. He was the living embodiment of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that is why we can say 
that Jesus was the very face of love. The clearest image of that is Jesus hanging from a cross in a willing act of sacrifice that our sins might be atoned and our relationship with God might be restored. Jesus was and is God's love in the flesh. But I close out by leaving you with a radical suggestion. With God's help, we can be too. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your gentle way among us. And yet a, a way that is firm and unyielding. And because of that, we can come before you and declare that we are your children. You have called us to your side. And now enable us to live out that same spirit with each other in the world. That the love of Jesus Christ might be seen in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My prayer is that as we come to the conclusion of this series that we will have a better sense of these virtues that God has called us to, to nurture. But it can't happen by human effort. It happens with the Holy Spirit moving in us. If you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ and acknowledged Him as Lord, that's the necessary first step to allow His power to live through you. If you've taken that step and maybe you're still looking to connect with a church, we want to invite you in these moments. But all of us have some response to give that we might become a little bit more like Him. So my prayer is that as we sing together, we will pause to ponder how the fruit are giving an expression in our lives that we might become a little bit more like Jesus. I pray that will happen as we worship together. Let's stand and sing together.